Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Mr. Rod Humphreys. Get out of my Get pub. Out of my Get pub. out of Get my, out of my pub. pub. Four. There's a sort of strange entitlement that these people seem to feel that they have got to do. They can do what they like. Three. He seems the eternal optimist of politics. Boris Johnson has become the ultimate curmudgeonly stick in the mud. Two. My son and his mates now think that if you protest for two hours, you can change the world. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Brace yourself, Planet Normal day trippers. We're in a news onslaught of galactic proportions. The European Super League's been shown as straight red. The gazillionaire owners of our so-called big clubs folding in the face of angry fan protests. Derek Chauvin's guilty on all counts. The Minnesota police officer convicted for the murder of George Floyd. The Queen's just turned 95. Happy birthday, your madge. Having last week buried her beloved husband, co-pilot Pearson reveals the secrets of royal funeral speed writing. And the Oscars will soon be upon us. Planet Normal's tipping one particular film for multiple Hollywood uber gongs. But let's start with Covid. Only last week, Alison, Boris Johnson was claiming the UK's plunging COVID death rate was less to do with our vaccination programme than with lockdown. Yet official statistics reported by The Telegraph now seem to be contradicting the Prime Minister. Again. They certainly do, Lee. We've had quite a few Planet Normal listeners. I mean, they're normally a bit a bit peeved, but we've had full on... Rage. <laughs> rage, rage, absolutely. <laughs> a tsunami of opprobrium. A tsunami of opprobrium. Yeah, they're not very happy with the um, Prime Minister telling them that the vaccines they've had are not making any contribution at all. Yeah, we've had an extraordinary reaction to that. And as you say, Laura Donnelly, our health editor, pointing out this week that only 32 of 74,000 hospital admissions with covid were people who've been vaccinated. So that shows absolutely categorically that the vaccines are working really well. And I think that there's just this growing sort of tetchiness, Liam, because, yeah, as you said, I mean, I was on royal funeral duty, which was a pretty big gig, really. And one of the things that upset me, and I know upset a lot of people, was that Prince Philip's funeral was subject to these very draconian funeral regulations. Only 30 people you're allowed. And on Saturday, I looked up how many cases of COVID were in the Windsor area, and it seemed to be four. That's four, not 40, not 400, not 4,000, but four. <laughs> the one after three. <laughs> yeah, the one after three. Just had 30 people mask the Queen Cutter a very, I think, lonely figure sitting on her own in her mask at the funeral of her husband of 73 years. And as you pointed out, Alison, this is a medieval vaulted chamber (laughs) and there are more people watching the Snooker World Championship live. That's right. The Sheffield Crucible on Saturday had 300 spectators for the for the World Snooker Championship. Yet the Her Majesty the Queen at one of the really historic moments of her reign, you know, a moment of immense poignancy and and resonance with that beautiful ceremony was allowed 30 people and couldn't even have anyone sitting near her. So I just felt it was a sort of symbolic to me of the wildly disproportionate measures which cannot be justified, Liam. They cannot be justified. The Telegraph had another story this week saying that you were now more likely to be killed in a road accident than you were to die of COVID. So it seems to me that it was just so cruel and unnecessary. And I think what people are railing against is the stupidity and 
My hero of the week, Liam, apart from Her Majesty the Queen, who turned 95, bless her. Drum roll, apart Drum from roll. me. Um, yeah, hero of the week, Mr Rod Humphreys stepped forward, the pub landlord. Hey, of the get Rick. out of my pub! Get out of get my out pub! Of get out of my pub! Out of my pub. <laughs> Yeah, Rod, I'm sure <laughs> listeners saw him. Rod is the landlord of the Raven Pub in Bath and Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, was doing a walkabout. And Rod Humphreys, interestingly, Liam, he is, has been a Labour voter, but he is absolutely furious, not just with Keir Starmer, but with the political class, but Keir happened to be passing. And, P- and Keir Starmer's bodyguard, who yeah. rather manhandled him, manhandled to say the least. Him. But Rod's point was that the leader of the opposition has provided no opposition at all to the government, something point we've made. He hasn't been doing his job, Rod said, of standing up for the poor and the young. And Rod was doing very well confronting uh, Starmer with these official statistics. And later, of course, the it was one of those moments, wasn't it, Liam, where politicians suddenly meet a real person. And we've seen that before with uh, Gordon Brown and, and Gillian Duffy. And there, there are various woman. examples. Yes, that bigoted woman, he called her. But after this rather brave confrontation, I, I know that Rod lost it a bit. And I, I felt for him because you know what it's like when you feel very pent up emotion about something. Obviously, his business has barely been able to open for 12 months. And I think it all came burbling out. But after that confrontation, the Labour Party tweeted accusing Mr Humphreys of peddling dangerous misinformation. Now, that's the way that he's been shut down. We've been shut down in the past, haven't we? He wasn't peddling dangerous misinformation. He was reading out data from the Office for National Statistics. I I just felt there you had a real world guy and Keir Starmer who hasn't really got much bedside manner with the rest of the human race, at least not that we've seen so far, hits him with this kind of dispatch box political robo-speak. I'm not going to take any lectures from you. And then the spin unit whirs into action, trying to discredit the guy who's watched his business go down the tubes. I thought it was a really typically so far cardboard cutout performance from Keir Starmer, a leader whose potential... I've praised in recent weeks because I do think he's so much better than the figure he's cutting. I think he's a lot more intelligent than he's letting on so far for all the difficulties of trying to be leader of the opposition via Zoom. As soon as he was out from behind his laptop, I thought he totally mishandled a difficult situation. What he should have done, as he said, he should have said, I tell you what, Rod, bring me out a pint here. We'll sit down and in front of the cameras, we'll have a chat. Difficult when the guy was in such a, a a tizzy, as you say, but he could have come back five minutes later and said, look, let's have a discussion about this. He could have turned it to his advantage if he had had the kind of cognitive and intellectual confidence and sure-footedness, but he didn't have. So instead, he sort of unleashed the Labour spin doctor attack unit on a member of the public who's watched his business go down the tubes. But the but the truth is, Liam, later on in a much calmer interview for Talk Radio, uh, Rod Humphreys just talked about the grinding stupidity of the measures that he and other people have been subject to. He said, you know, the substantial meal was nonsense. The putting on your mask to go to the toilet inside is nonsense. Sure. Is a scotch egg a substantial meal <laughs> well, and like... Members of the cabinet discussing this, you know. <laughs> well, I don't think the political class hasn't really. They faced no opposition in Parliament, and people in the country now are all starting to say, "Well, hang on, why can't we have somebody in our home when we can do this?" I mean, you had you had scenes of, you know, people outside pubs and in pub gardens and so on o- over the weekend, and we still had the royal family, you know, sitting there as though there was a, the Black Death was raging outside the door. I do hope history will look back at that footage from the royal wedding and think, what the hell were they playing at? And of course, the Queen couldn't say, I don't want this to happen because so many people in the last year have been subject to those inhumane measures. The last thing she'd want is special treatment. And that would go against everything that I think she stands for. And, you know, we've bigged up Laura Donnelly, our health editor, rightly so. And we'll put a link to that article in the show notes. But I also wanted to highlight another excellent Telegraph commentator, Patrick O'Flynn, who's written a column responding to Laura's analysis. And he points out, Alison, that the data not date soundbite has bit the dust. 
Why? Because the data not date soundbite was there to prolong lockdown when the roadmap was unveiled in case cases and deaths refused sufficiently to fall. Ah. But now on every measure, cases, fatalities, hospitalizations, vaccine efficacy, vaccine take up, the UK's overperforming those roadmap assumptions, suggesting lockdown should end sooner than the roadmap indicates. So data not dates is a phrase you're not going to hear Boris mentioning anymore. Instead, these telegraph revelations show that just one in every 2,300 people, as Patrick O'Flynn points out, who've ended up in hospital with COVID in recent months, having had the jab. I mean, the vaccine is astonishingly beneficial, mm. yet Johnson continues to play down the idea that vaccines have been the magic bullet. And that weakens the message to those who've yet to have the jab to go and get one. I mean, it seems the eternal optimist of politics, Boris Johnson, has become the ultimate curmudgeonly stick in the mud. Yes, and we've just had a, a little bit of a bulletin from George, who's our source in NHS England. We always say, Liam, don't we, that we, we can't independently verify George's data because it's not published yet, but we have checked out his or her bona fides. And we protect the identity to protect George's job. Absolutely. But George is saying there are only 1,575 COVID inpatients in all hospitals in England today. I'm predicting that by the time Planet Normal airs this week, we will be below 1,500, on average, fewer than 50 new COVID admissions per day and a continuing steady decline in patients diagnosed. Now, this is interesting, Liam. Strangely, George says the rate of, here's the favourite Velma word, nosocomial infections. Nosocomial. You know how proud I am of knowing that word. So that's people being infected in hospital. I'm still not sure what it means. It, me it means in hospital, it doesn't it? It means in hospital. It means you go into the NHS with something else and they give you a virus for free. 17% of inpatient diagnoses were acquired in hospital in the last last seven days compared to 12% last week. So they really haven't got that infection control sorted out. But George is saying there's a net reduction of around 60 or so patients every day. And this is the headline. At this rate, COVID occupancy should be down to 1% of all available beds by the end of April. Wow. And by the end of May, there should be hardly any COVID patients left at all. And then George signs off with, let's just hope the latest double mutant chocolate-coated variant doesn't slip through the vaccine net. OK, on that George bombshell, let's leave COVID there for now, because I want to ask you, Alison, as somebody who has very little interest in football, but a big interest in, in politics and society and power, mm. what did you make of the last mad 48 or 72 hours when this European Super League threatened to be the biggest change to our national game in a generation, but then suddenly fizzled out. It was incredible, wasn't it? And now I'm not interested in football, but my, my connection with it, Liam, is that the two men in my life, husband and son, are very, very interested in it. And I would, uh, I would say I live with the mood swings. <laughs> if Chelsea is lost, there's a kind of funereal gloom over the, over the premises for, for quite some time. Do you let them off the washing then, up if Chelsea oh, lose? I, I just, you know, I, t I tiptoe around. I told you once years ago, didn't I, when, um, <laughs> when he was watching Chelsea play and I sat down because I was trying to have some bonding time with him. And I literally sat there not saying anything. And then he said, Mum, could you go out? And I said, what do you mean, could I go out? I haven't said anything. He said, no, but you're thinking too loudly. And uh, <laughs> The cogs are whirring. Was... <laughs> Planet Normal listeners going to attest to that. Oh, my God. I know. Spray some WD-40 on the Pearson Here nuts. she goes, Pearson's thinking too loudly again. But he went down to the bridge. So this is your son? My son is uh, 21. Went down to the bridge with his mates. They were absolutely incensed. So they're outside Chelsea's ground. Outside Chelsea's ground. Hollering. Hollering, singing. Absolutely incredible. And I think it's just the, I don't know if you saw, there was a lovely woman on the news, actually a Liverpool fan, and she said, oh, they just refer to me as a legacy fan. Absolute dripping contempt of these super rich clubs for the ordinary foot soldier who are so passionately engaged as my son yeah. is, you know, 
recently sat with him through some, you know, 5-1 drubbing by Aston Villa or something. And so he was, my only concern, Liam, was that the capitulation of these super leaguers was so total that, uh, that my son and his mates now think that if you protest for two hours, you can change the world. But it was incredible. But but, but, but it happened, didn't it? Didn't, yes. didn't you tell me that... Uh... As he was outside the ground, the news came through that Chelsea, Man City and now the other big four clubs, Man United, Arsenal, Liverpool and Spurs, their gazillionaire owners withdrew from the European Super League. Now, the whole thing's collapsed because it was going to be a league, wasn't it, where only the big clubs would take part and they couldn't be relegated or promoted. So the likes of Aston Villa, the likes of Leicester, the likes of Wolves, clubs that have done brilliantly in Europe in the past and are up and coming, they won't have a look in. So so your son was outside the ground as that news was announced, right? And he was photographed, there he was last night, on the front page of The Guardian, no less, sort of uh, (laughs) shouting his little head off. I bet bet The Guardian picture editor didn't know he was about to put (laughs) Alison Pearson's sprog on the front page. (laughs) Is this a sort of broader victory for the ordinary consumer against globalisation, do you think? Is, Is there something more to it than just football? I do think that this Super League proposal and the arrogance with which the big clubs put it forward was representative of a sort of new gilded age that we live in. You obviously have the tech giants that do what they want. You have now the big football clubs who try and do what they want. Mm. You know, the utility companies, the big housing developers, as I bang on about all the time. It strikes me that business interests have got too big for their boots. And I speak as a sort of card-carrying, you know, pro-market capitalist, person who covers business is fascinated by business you know i'm not the typical person to complain about business but business has got too big for its boots and i think in general business and politics the world are too intertwined these days and it's good to see fan power and also backed by politicians it must be said the prime minister and keir starmer very quick to speak out on this saying that they didn't want it to happen seems to have prevailed for now And that's an absolutely fabulous thing, in my view. But let me ask you in return, another big story announced the verdict on uh, Derek Chavin, who has been convicted now of murdering George Floyd. What did you make of that, Alison? Well, I think it was a huge relief because, you know, if the verdict had gone any other way, it would have obviously provoked terrible dismay and and protests and and he was Derek Chauvin's quite rightly convicted on second degree and third degree murder I mean I don't think there was any doubt about that and I and I understand Liam it's actually surprisingly rare for an American cop's colleagues to testify against him so that's marked a sea change I think and I think everyone was glad to see justice done I, I've got some uncomfortable feelings about it I don't like the way that the Black Lives Matter thing is conflated with the British experience. We seem to have embraced it far more than any other European country. I think we've we've talked before, haven't we, about how the British experience is wildly different from the American experience, which America has this primal wound of slavery, which it's still grappling with in, in the most painful way. And I I, I just I you know we saw last last summer in the Black Lives Matter protests here, we had young people shouting at the police, please don't shoot. And you think, yeah, they don't, our police don't carry guns. You know, we don't have these same issues. And I, and I dislike it. And I dislike the way it's it's infecting every part of our culture. I, mean, I don't, don't know if you saw this weekly. I wrote in the column that of all things, that the director of the Jane Austen Museum in little village of Chawton, Hampshire, says that Jane Austen's tea drinking, among other things, will be subject to historical <laughs> interrogation over its slavery links and all the staff will be considering Austin's place in Regency era colonialism. And you can imagine all these lovely sort of fans of Pride and Prejudice sort of going down there for a cream tea, not realising that their cream tea is going to be subject to historical interrogation. And, and you know, I mean, we can laugh, but I personally think it's wildly inappropriate and and disproportionate. And whilst realising it was a very, very, you know, the horrible murder of George Floyd, I just don't like the contaminating effect it's having 
in our society with people genuflecting now before Black Lives Matter. Just, just I should add, Liam, that you know Black Lives Matter want the police to be defunded. That's one of their stated aims. And The Telegraph had a story, which is where in Democrat states, where they have reduced police funding, guess what? Violent crime has gone up. So lots of murky issues. What do you think? I welcome the verdict, of course, and I think the footage showing Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck was grotesque and inhumane and evil almost, mm. the, the way he had his sunglasses on the top of his head. And I think once that footage came to the fore, the, re the result rightly was a foregone conclusion. But I too, like you, am very uneasy about the idea of UK race relations being elided with US race relations. I've lived in the US a lot. They're very, very, very different places, as we've often said on Planet Normal. It goes back to our interview, doesn't it, a few weeks back with Tony Sewell, his race relations yes, report, yes. that was full of factual analysis on things like life opportunities of various ethnic groups in the UK. If you look at things, deaths in police custody, of course we have deaths in police custody in the UK. Of course it's terrible that we have them. Of course there are bad apples in the UK's police force. Of course there is some racism. But this is not the US by any stretch of the imagination. And if you look at the numbers, 8% of those who've died in police custody, these are the official numbers in recent years, are black. And black population is only 3% of the population, which sounds really bad. And of course, it is really bad. On the other hand, 9% of all those arrested are black. And if you look at the actual numbers over the last 10 years, and this is an official study, a white individual who's been arrested is about 25% more likely to die in police custody than a black individual who's been arrested. It seems futile and ridiculous to compare grief and try and downplay the awful injustice of somebody dying in police custody here in the UK. Of course, that's a terrible thing. But you have to point out these numbers when we're constantly being compared to the US, whose police have a far, far, far worse record than the UK. And these realities need to be pointed out in order to recognise the bad things about race relations in the UK, the bad things about the police here in the UK, but also to recognise the good things and the relative merits of race relations here in the UK and police action here in the UK. Because if you don't recognise progress, how can we make more progress? Yes, but you've seen, Liam, haven't you, the vicious attacks on Tony Sewell and his commission. I think all but one of the members was from an ethnic minority group, some incredibly experienced and knowledgeable people. And we've seen the most appalling personal attacks on these people. I don't know if you saw it, actually. Someone I really admire, Kemi Badnock, the Conservative MP. I believe she's the Women and Equalities Minister. And she gave a scathing rebuttal in the Commons of, of, of these people who've been using that report to, in a most divisive and ugly way. And it makes you very proud to see, you know, a younger British black MP pushing back and, and she's constantly said, this is a great country, you know, to be someone like me in. But they don't want to hear it, Liam, you see. Unfortunately, we see a lot of anti-racism campaigners who, you know, who have a vested interest in us being an ugly and racist country. And when people like you read out those stats about deaths in police custody, those are actually facts, Liam. And Tony Sewell's report, the Commission's report, was full of very encouraging data about our country having made great progress. And if you cast your mind back as well, a, a much earlier guest on Planet Normal was Trevor Phillips, wasn't it? And, yeah. and Trevor said exactly that. Trevor said, if we can't admit that there's been progress, then, you know, we can't make further progress. You know, it's as if saying progress is, is impossible. So I can't see the Black Lives Matter influence going away soon, particularly with many corporations literally and metaphorically taking the knee before that. And they're not all good attitudes that they're informed by. Just before we move on, Alison, I wanted to doff my Planet Normal chapeau to you <laughs> because... Uh, last Saturday is Prince Philip's funeral 
And I think the funeral didn't get going till about 3 p.m. But my Sunday Telegraph, your article basically filled the whole of the front page. Mm. And it was a pretty long article up against a really tight deadline. And you know that your article is going to lead the paper's coverage and really be the voice of the paper. What's it like writing a piece like that? Your absolute nightmare. I mean, it's uh... in a word, in one word, first thought, in one word. Go on. (laughs) Terrifying. Yeah. What a privilege, though, right? What a privilege to lead the paper's coverage in a single article. 13 million people are watching it, and I've got to try and sum it up as best I can. What were the feelings? How did we feel watching that, you know, astonishing military precision? The little touches like, you know, I mean, obviously the wonderful music, uh, Elgar's Nimrod, played by the band The Guards outside on that astonishing lawn. And the sun was so high that all of the soldiers' shadows created a kind of ghost army on the lawn. So it's noticing things like that, noticing the little details, like when the camera panned to Prince Philip's carriage, that his peaked cap and his gloves and the little container that he had, the sugar lumps for the ponies, was waiting for him. So it's capturing the emotion, it's capturing everything that people feel for the Queen who's now widowed after such a long marriage. You're right, it is a privilege. I I think I had about one hour, 45 minutes to write 1,500 words. Hi, listeners, it's Bryony Gordon here popping into this podcast to tell you all about another Telegraph series called Bryony Gordon's Mad World. It's a podcast in which I chat to household names and unsung heroes about their mental health, from Stacey Solomon to therapists and doctors on the front line. We talk about looking after ourselves as we heave ourselves out of lockdown and remind you that it's totally normal to feel weird. Search Mad World wherever you usually download your podcasts. Last week marked the death at the age of 90 of Shirley Williams, one of the Gang of Four who broke the mould of British politics in 1981, quitting a Labour party they viewed as hard left and out of touch, to form the SDP, which went on to win, of course, well over 20% of the vote in the 1983 and 1987 general elections. Having been Labour's Foreign Secretary, David Owen was also in the Gang of Four, eventually becoming SDP leader. He went on to co-author a pivotal Balkans peace plan in the early 90s and today sits in the Lords as an independent social democrat, remaining a significant political player. On top of all that, Lord Owen is a trained medic and neuroscientist and has written extensively about the NHS and the links between medicine and politics. I started by asking him how he thought future historians would judge this government's handling of the Covid crisis. I think they will be very interested in how we developed in our handling of this crisis. It wasn't very good at the start, there's no doubt about that, but it developed well. And I hope that when people look at the reasons why we were in problems in the early days, they will realise it was the neglect of the NHS in terms of policies, not always just of money and above all of prevention. And when you consider they did a trial run on influenza four years before in uh, 2016 and appeared to make no major changes, when we saw then the gaps, I mean, for example, ventilators, but many other gaps in our things. So we were totally unprepared. Overall, I don't spend my time looking for criticisms in how the government handled it. I overall say, broadly speaking, the politicians and the doctors have worked reasonably well together, and I'm broadly supportive. And I think we've got to stop this endless criticism that goes on day after day, always trying to find either political party points. The medical profession themselves have been split and exposed endlessly on television. And I I don't find any joy in watching that, to be frank. I've been reading your latest book, its updated version, uh, Hubris, uh, Power, Populism and Narcissism. And it strikes me in light of the the lobbying scandal that we're seeing at Westminster at the moment that one of your statements in that book, which you originally wrote in 2018, was quite interesting. 
What of David Cameron's personality, you wrote? I judge that he's far more cocky than hubristic, self-confident to the point of not giving a damn. Of course, there's lots of details that need to come out and there will be inquiries. But how significant do you think this lobbying probe will prove to be in terms of the former prime minister's reputation? Well, I think it's very serious. I mean, quite apart from anything else, the former prime minister told the chancellor, the exchequer, to put our money into this company. And then he went uh, bust. So it was a lousy advice. Anyhow, but apart from the fact that we now know that he himself had very considerable shares and shares options in this company. So he was wrong on the issue of the company's uh, strength and viability. And he was wrong not to declare to the chancellor. I mean, all he had to say in a conversation is, look, before this conversation gets any further, you should know I've got shares in this company. That's the most basic thing that you would do. I mean, that's just honest behavior between friends. And certainly if you were writing formally, which you also should have done at some stage, uh, then you would have also admitted, first of all, that one of the problems of these prime ministers now who don't go to the House of Lords is why don't they? They don't want to fill in the membership registration of interests. They have decided that they want to be free to run their own finances and their own arrangements of getting extra money. Okay, fair enough, that's up to them. But they must realize that they're effectively escaping from a declaration of interest. We like to think in the UK, don't we, that our political class is above corruption. We look down sometimes on other countries where that clearly isn't the case. Are we being complacent here, Lord Owen? We are being complacent. I don't think corruption is the core of it. There's a sort of strange entitlement that these people seem to feel that they have got to do. They can do what they like. I mean, they go abroad. Look at the links that have been established with one of the most corrupt countries in the world, Rwanda. Who are backing them? Blair and Clinton. Are Uganda next door not very much better? You really have got to stop this belief that you can do whatever you like abroad. You can go and advise the most corrupt companies, something like that. You, you know, we all do business in different things. I did business in Russia, but all this time I had to fulfill the obligations of a member of the House of Lords and put in all my share of transactions and everything like this. Now, broadly speaking, the interest arrangements are there. It's a question whether you avoid it. And what they've been doing, Cameron in particular, has been avoiding that. He gave the impression that he was doing nothing. Was, we all know he's reasonably well off. He doesn't need money. But we now find that he's deep into the money. They feel they're entitled to it. Now, the other thing is the civil service. We've now got a young uh, cabinet secretary, I think rather good idea, not tarred by all that's gone before. First thing he has to do is to ask the civil service, how many civil servants have got dual contracts, one with the civil service and one with business? I don't mind civil servants going out into business and coming back into the civil service. But I want to know what they're in. The idea of having a dual appointment. At the sa- a simultaneous appointment. Simultaneous appointment is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, and this has crept in without any of us knowing about it. The cabinet secretaries, um, uh, the last three that we've had, really have seen their role, it seems to be, to service the prime minister, to save the prime minister and ex-prime ministers. And Hayward wrote a book. I mean, actually, his wife wrote the book, so we're told. But that book should never have been allowed. And we've never yet had a cabinet secretary within a very short period of time, revealing all the secrets of who did what and cleaning his own record up. I mean, for example, I attacked him at one stage for stopping the PERDA period. He, he, he didn't want to have PERDA, which operates in a general election, operating in the referendum. Well, it now transpires he was against it. Well, he contacts me at one stage wanting to talk about this because he's worried about the criticism from me, flattering me and things like that. Well, I put his letter in the wastepaper basket. Well, it was probably an email. I mean, he has no business to be going and talking to outside people about this to try and put the record. They leak to journalists. If you look at Anthony Sheldon's books, most of them are composed of 
civil servants saying what they think, but anonymously. And then there's a list of eventually will be revealed. All this is new. They seem to want salaries of businessmen. They want the pension and the security of things. This is bad, and we've got to clean up the civil service as well as government and ministers. In your book, David, you talk about political hubris all the way from you know Thomas Jefferson through Lloyd George, Woodrow Wilson. The criticism for me that really rang true, having been a political reporter myself throughout the period, you talk about the breakdown of cabinet government here in the UK from Blair onwards, and you say in your book it's a political imperative to challenge and curtail the imperial presidency that's arrived in British politics from the US. It's absolutely vital that Boris Johnson restores cabinet government. Do you see that happening? Do you see the current prime minister restoring cabinet government? Is he hubristic? It's a bit early to say because COVID has so dominated his period as prime minister. And under COVID, you're bound to, this is a pandemic, it's an emergency, and a lot of decisions have got to be taken quite rapidly. And they have to be taken by the prime minister. And I, I wouldn't, it's a bit like war. You invest in a prime minister in war. But even when we had our greatest challenge of wartime, when Churchill was a supremely confident prime minister and figure, there was still debate in that cabinet. Of course, it was a coalition, uh, but Attlee and Ernie Bevin and people like that had a big say in that cabinet. But the signs were uh, that Churchill always understood than collective responsibility and answerability. And certainly during the war, our time of greatest peril, we had proper cabinet government. I do not believe that our system of government operates like a presidential system. But Tony Blair introduced it after he'd won his first election. And then that led to the debacle of Iraq and the failure to weld all together the armed forces advice and collectively and bringing into cabinet. A lot of those decisions that were taken, if they come to cabinet, instead of being taken by Blair on an armchair, then we would have found it a great deal more wisdom. Cabinet can bring a collective wisdom, and a good prime minister draws that from the cabinet. Of course, in the end of the day, they're previous into Paris. That's the expression, the Latin expression, first amongst equals. But they must treat their cabinet ministers as if they are equal on certain areas where they have expertise that the prime minister cannot possibly. In your book, you ask the question, David, of the current prime minister, will he stop telling untruths and lying? Will he, in short, live up to the adage, office maketh man? We have had COVID. It is an exceptional situation, as you say, in some senses similar to wartime, But what's your judgment so far, particularly on that notion, as you call it, of mendacity? Well, the jury's out on that. I don't think we can yet tell. There, obviously, sometimes he's already uh, misled the House Commons, had to come to correct it and to deal with it. He is showing some signs, in my view, A, of becoming much better informed, much more serious figure. I do think we've probably seen a different Boris from when he recovered from himself having very bad COVID, not in the sense it diminished his responsibilities, took life more seriously, lost weight, has shown a much greater willingness to read his scripts and to acknowledge him. The man's got a very good brain, we all know that, and also got a great gift of the tongue and use of words. He's got to rid himself of this habit of being casual with the truth. And I hope that's happening. I think it is. I the jury's out. It's early in days in his prime ministership. He has the capacity to be a very formidable prime minister. There's no doubt about that. But Could he be a great prime minister, David? I avoided that word when I chose formidable. I am not <laughs> sure he would be a great prime minister. He'd be a formidable prime minister, and we need one. And I, I have hopes, but I'm always an optimist, and I believe that office does have an effect. And I think you can see that already on Boris in lots of ways. He's got a very real opportunity of being able to bring the country together. His capacity to win votes in Labour seats has already been shown. It's because people like him. I mean, they forgive him a hell of a lot. He's got a lot of leeway as to how he behaves. But uh, the truth is his problem, and he's got to be much more careful about it. And that may mean from time to time saying, well, I don't know. I'll come back to you with a reply. Many prime ministers have used that. That's not a 
dishonourable advice. You're talking to us, David, from your house in East London in Limehouse, which gave the name to the famous Limehouse Declaration of 1981, which launched the SDP. You're one of the Gang of Four. And of course, so is Shirley Williams, who now has sadly passed away aged 90 after a very distinguished political career. Um, Did you advise her to be the STP leader in the early days? And Why do you think she wasn't the leader? Because at the time, despite your appeal, Roy Jenkins' appeal, Bill Rogers, also a formidable political figure at the time, she really was the one, wasn't she, of the four of you, who had the biggest pull with the public? Absolutely. And we were a new party. She was the ideal figure to be the leader. And I begged her to become leader. I I said, you know, if you want company in challenging Roy Jenkins, I'll come in, but I won't put up my troops to onto anything other than getting you as leader and we can win this and if we win this we will do well in 83 election as it came up and there's no doubt if she'd been the leader then it's no criticism of Roy it's just the basic facts of life she was very attractive figure to many people and in particular women and in particular labor women in the northeast of England and that was where we needed support why she didn't do it well we were never Close friends, we were, we were, you know, at Oxford together. I was at Cambridge. We didn't bump into each other. I came into politics knowing very little. It took time to build a relationship with her. But by the end of her life, we were close friends. And two years in Greece, I put that question to her. And what it became clear, and she was quite open about it, and it was not true, but she lacked the confidence. She didn't think she was as good as she was. And I think that's one of the real tragedies of women not being given their full rights and still are not given their full rights, is that too many very able women lack confidence in their actual genuine ability. And I think Shirley was one of those, and I'm very sad about it. I could have done and should have done more to give her that confidence. She was out of the Commons at the time in 81, 82, as the SDP was getting into gear, wasn't she? She'd lost her seat famously at Hartford and Stevenage, I think, in 79, though she came back in the Crosby by-election in 83. Was that part of the reason that she was out of the Commons? And, David, I think what a lot of people want to know is what do you think would have happened if it had been Shirley Williams going up against Margaret Thatcher in that crucial 1983 election, which was the one that really paved the way for a whole decade and more of Thatcher? We would have polled more votes than the Labour Party. We very nearly polled more than them anyhow. And what's more, because of Shirley's popularity in certain areas, we would have won more of the Labour vote. This was on the back of the Falklands. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was going to win the election. But we could have smashed the Labour Party to the extent that they would have to have made fundamental changes. They still have not made those fundamental changes and become a social democratic party. And we would have been in a position of strength to negotiate with Labour that we'll join up with you if you do the following, not if you don't. And it would have been a completely different relationship. And they would have had to have a leader who wanted us to come in to combine combination with them. And we would have come into government sometime, probably even 87. It's quite astonishing. You got around 25% of the vote in 83, didn't you? And Labour were only on 27 or 28. But but you were hammered by first past the post, of course. I think you only got 23 seats or so, and they got over 200. On a straight vote, we could have still broken through. And then eventually, Labour would have to come to its senses, and there would have been a, a coalition government formed with us. And then maybe eventually we'd have merged. I mean, Shirley and I had no problems in the true Labour Party. And I still can understand and support many things which are Labour. I'm not a Liberal, never joined them, never wanted to join them. I understand their tradition, but it's not for me. I remain a Social Democrat. And I think that the same applies to Bill Rogers, who fortunately is still alive, although older than me. And Bill is, in his heart, a Labour person. And I, in my heart, am a Labour person. But not the Labour Party that was emerging and not the Labour Party even now. I'm afraid it still has very serious problems to overcome. They won't stand up to that element that are not Democrats. You can't have in your party people who are authoritarian, uh, 
people of the left. They are they are a menace and they have to be removed and they have not been removed. So what is your advice finally, David, to Keir Starmer? I think he's doing his best and I watch it with interest and I hope he'll succeed. But I think that um, focus on the party. The party structure has to change. Otherwise, they will come back and bite you. And they'll bite you pretty hard if you're a weak opposition leader. David Owen, thank you very much for joining us on Planet Normal. Well, Liam, that's the best Prime Minister we never had, isn't it? It's always lovely to hear him. Bit of a crush of mine. I'm gonna be shall I can I say that? It's a bit too embarrassing, but <laughs> All the Davids, David Owen, David Cassidy, you know. <laughs> I know, you're right. It's the word David. You know, among the many things to admire him for, he came out of retirement to lend luster and authority to the Leave campaign. And I think he did play a huge part in securing Brexit, having been, as you said, the Minister for Europe in a Labour government. And and he, you know, the scales dropped from his eyes, I think, as he saw Brussels behaving in a dreadful authoritarian way. So he's a, a wonderful truth teller. And something that I picked up, Liam, which I thought was excellent, was he's talking back at the beginning of the pandemic and not blaming the politicians, but that the NHS was, well, neglect of the NHS, as he said, not purely money neglect. The NHS was in a terrible state. And that was policy, prevention. When the government turned to Public Health England, who was supposed to prepare for the pandemic, and said, where's the PPE? The cupboard was bare. So I think he is a much, David Owen, a fantastic truth teller and uh, speaks with you know just such wisdom it's always a pleasure to hear him you're right he was foreign secretary un- under labor under jim callahan and he was a very very pro eu foreign secretary mm. the the european economic community as it became the eu and that's a big reason that gang of four left the labor party because the Le- labor party was so anti us being part of Europe at that time. And yet David Owen has held consistent in his views as the European Union has become more federalist, less democratic, more and more of a super state rather than an economic uh, trading block. His view has shifted. And I do think the fact that people like David Owen, like Gisela Stewart for Labour, very, very moderate figures of the left were so vehemently pro-Brexit. That did give a lot of credibility to the Leave cause. And you know, Alison, behind the scenes, he is a formidable political player to this day, pulling all kinds of strings, influencing all kinds of people. He has a lot of the leaders, not just of the UK, but of many, many other important countries on speed dial. And many, many people confer with him and, and seek his advice. So I think it was great that we had him on Planet Normal. And I was delighted to to catch up with him. But before we move on, I just want to mention the Oscars. Yes. Because they're next Monday, the 26th of April, and you've got a big tip, haven't you, for who's going to win? Well, you know I live with a a movie critic, a great movie critic. To say the least. (laughs) To say the least. I've got to see an awful lot of the films, some some good and, and some bad this year. I and mean, obviously it's been very slim pickings for cinema this year because, you know, poor old movie theatres have been closed, but it's not that controversial to claim. But there is this rather magical, quite bleak, but amazing film called Nomad Land, Liam, which is, I mean, just to, to sum it up briefly, it's a woman in her 60s who loses her job and takes to living in a van and lives this very peripatetic life with other people in vans. And it's quite resonant of a sort of John Steinbeck Great Depression era story. So I think it's going to chime a lot with the kind of recession that's that we're moving into. But I think that the film will win the best picture. Frances McDormand, who who always is wonderful, but is particularly extraordinary in this film, which is actually full of real people who live in vans. So there are only one or two actual actors. And also notably Chloe Zhao, a young Asian-American woman, I think will win the Best Director. And I think that will make her only the second woman to win Best Director Oscar. And I think she becomes the first woman of colour to be Best Director. So that will be rather remarkable. Let's see if our tips come off. Now it's time for our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful 
insightful, often funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages which you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you and you do have the chance now of winning a spectacular Planet Normal mug. Lots of fantastic emails this week. Here's one that caught my eye. This is from Christopher. My kids learned a great deal over the past week about Prince Philip and their estimation for the man grew remarkably, rightly so. There was an article in The Telegraph reporting that the National Trust is going to mandate unconscious bias training even for rangers with no interaction with the public. I wonder if the National Trust's unconscious bias towards all things positive about this nation will be included. Too bad the prince won't be there to be a guest lecturer on the topic. It would have made the training of actual use. R.I.P. Philip and my family's prayers for the Queen as she tackles the next stage of life. This is one from Yael, writing from Israel, showing the planet normal cosmos stretches far and wide. One of the things that strikes me, says Yael, is how Israel, a worldwide success story given our vaccination programme, is also put forward as an example to the UK with regards to vaccine passports. I don't think this is correct to tie the two. A successful rollout of a vaccine has nothing to do with the idea of a vaccine passport. I've also noticed a lack of knowledge about the implications of the vaccine passport on society. The ideal picture portrayed in the media has nothing to do with the reality of what's happening here in Israel. As someone educated in Israel, but who's also lived in the UK, and who lives in Israel now, I can testify the vaccine passport is not a success at all. Some examples. A 38-year-old Orthodox friend of mine is a father of five. One of them has learning disabilities. He's concerned with vaccines in general after losing faith in the establishment, given the way they treated his child, and he's not willing to take the vaccine. He's not allowed into his synagogue anymore. A vaccine in Israel is not available for children under 16, so restaurants, hotels and outdoor pools aren't allowing them in. Is that normal? Universities are open, but only to students vaccinated. A lot of employers are demanding unlawfully that staff show a vaccine passport or be tested at their expense every 72 hours. Such employers include some of Israel's biggest banks, supermarket chains and airlines. There's now a lawsuit being prepared against them. To drive people to take a vaccine, there's a media campaign smearing those who are unwilling as disease spreaders. Israel's become a very dark place for people who can't or refuse to take the vaccine. So employers are bullying their employees. This is tearing up families and friendships. Vaccinated grandparents are afraid of their grandchildren. It's madness and must be stopped. When did we become a society in which healthy people must prove they're healthy to get on with their lives? Having most of the vulnerable vaccinated, there's no rationale coercing these vaccines. I've nothing against vaccines, says Yael, but the idea of a vaccine passport is terrifying and I'm afraid Britain will soon go down this path. Do we really want the UK to become a country where citizens are policing and bullying each other? Thank you, Planet Normal, a sane voice in an insane world. And thank you, Yael, for writing to us from Israel. That's fascinating, Liam, isn't it? We know that Michael Gove this week has been in Israel checking out how the vaccine passports are working to possibly introduce them here. And I I hope he finds out some of what Yael was, was talking about. This next email is from Dr. Claire. You'll remember, Liam, that Dr. Claire was a guest on Planet Normal and and she's bringing us an update. There is a great phrase in the Bible, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Many of my patients are now heartily sick of the lies, broken promises, moving goalposts and disappointments of the past year. It seems the government is planning to keep us under restrictions indefinitely, just in case a new variant appears that may partially evade the vaccine. Every time we get a new variant identified, which will keep happening because viruses do mutate, it takes weeks or months for them to decide it's no more infectious or serious and the vaccines do work, as happened with the Kent variant. By this time, another variant, the Indian variant, has appeared and the process is repeated. Even the totally discredited modellers now admit there will be no third wave this summer. As ever, the facts are completely at odds with predictions. Boris's recent ridiculous and unscientific allegations about the ineffectiveness of the vaccination programme has done a great disservice to the NHS. 
My colleagues and I have been working seven-day weeks since January to achieve the vaccination targets weeks ahead of schedule. What was the point? It has made no difference to restrictions, dates instead of data. In addition, I find it is becoming increasingly difficult to persuade vaccine sceptics and younger people not at risk from the virus to have the jab. What's the point, they say, if they're told it's ineffective and carries a risk of blood clots? Does Boris really think before he opens his mouth? It's increasingly worrying having such an inept and spineless leader. This week, in my surgery, I saw another case of a middle-aged man with late-stage lung cancer. He didn't get his persistent cough checked out because he had been repeatedly told that the NHS was under pressure and he wasn't ill enough to bother the health service. I'm now seeing large numbers of friends and patients breaking the rules in small and safe ways, even the sticklers. Lord Sumption says change happens like this, not in big protests, but in the masses, quietly breaking the law. Well, I hug anyone who is happy to be hugged. And if people ask me to go into their home, I go. We have to live again. People are at breaking point. Very powerful email there from Claire. Here's another one from afar. As the UK Western media gets excited about COVID in India, may I offer some observations, asks Jasper, a British expat living in New Delhi. Testing here is now 10 times higher than last year, says Jasper, so we obviously have more cases. There's no evidence that India's strain, in quotes, is any more dangerous or resistant to vaccines than other strains. Death rates here in India remain some of the lowest on Earth due to a demographically young population and better innate resistance. The incidence of younger patients in hospitals is directly linked to socioeconomic, says Jasper, not a leading indicator of the strain being more damaging. And 120 million vaccinations have been administered here and vaccines will be available to everyone over 18 from May the 1st. This country, as you know, is also very, very strong on vaccine production. So it seems to me India's a lot like the US in terms of overall COVID dynamics, high free will rather than coercion, a huge population, but massive get-up-and-go, and weapons-grade vaccine administration infrastructure. Oh, and India's already exported 60 million vaccines. Some here bemoan that fact, but it should surely be applauded. Best wishes to Planet Normal listeners from New Delhi. Jasper. Don't we learn a lot from our listeners, yeah, Liam? It's unbelievable. Honestly. Unbelievable, I know. And he's right, the death rate in India from COVID is just one third of the global average. Yes, you wouldn't think that, would you, from watching the news? This is also great from Victoria responding to the discussion we had last week about Shirley Williams and getting rid of the grammar schools. Victoria says... My parents benefited hugely from the education and therefore social mobility of going to grammar school. They were born in the 1920s into working class families in the north of England. They both had successful careers as journalists and broadcasters. My father, probably best known for starting the Beaujolais Nouveau rally when he was diarist for the Sunday Times. Sadly, I did not benefit from attending Holland Park Comprehensive School, the flagship of the 1960s state education system. I was in the top class of the academic stream at Holland Park for five years and a contemporary of senior politicians' offspring. I appeared to be doing well until the results of my entrance examination to the sixth form of the academically excellent Francis Holland School were revealed. Mrs Brigstock, later to be Baroness Brigstock, the then head, pronounced me untouched by education. Those egalitarian principles worked in reverse, dragging the bright kids down rather than giving opportunity to the disadvantaged, unless, of course, you were more equal than others and went home to several hours of expensive home tuition. I pity the brothers at my school who had to face the slow hand clap of 2,500 pupils as they ascended the stage at Holland Park to receive just about every award going at prize day. The embarrassment must be with them to this day. Thanks to you and Liam for the weekly dose of fun and common sense amid the doom and hysteria. One from Vera. Is it not amazing that a football matter elicits more public condemnation and indignation than the curtailment of our most basic liberties for over a year? A sad indictment of our society when the creation of a super league makes the nation so emotional that the most draconian rules applied to our lives go duly unquestioned. As the great Bill Shankly said, the former manager of Liverpool, some say 
football's a matter of life and death. But it's much more important than that. <laughs> so that's it from Planet Normal for another week, our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my call. I'd say, drum roll. This week's coveted Planet Normal mug goes to Yael in Israel. Send us a postal address, Yael, and we'll DHL or carry a pigeon you a Planet Normal <laughs> mug somehow. Maybe we can get Michael Gove to take it in his, um, in his yeah. bag on his, um, on, his, on his vaccine passport inquiry. <laughs> Liam and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning. The day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. We'll put the link to that article in the episode description or just go to the Telegraph website homepages www.telegraph.co.uk and look for the article labelled Planet Normal. So as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard and Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.